Welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. I am your host, Ray Gerard, with me in studio again, the always wise, the always uh, thoughtful Mr. Bob Henicus. Always might be a stretch. Periodic would be a better word, but I like that. Thank you. Well, I'm in a feeling in a very kind mood today. Anyways, uh, this is the program that asks, hey, what if, what if St. Paul was alive today and he could... Um, Look at what was going on in our country and write a letter to us. He wrote a lot of letters. <laughs> Would he have anything to tell us in America? Is there anything going wrong that he might be able to give us some advice on? Well, if that thought had ever occurred to you, what would somebody from the past like St. Paul have to say? He came to the right place because we're going to tell you exactly what he said. And there's a reason why we can do that. Uh, it's not because we're always wise and intelligent. Uh, but it's because um, St. Paul spoke the truth, and truths don't change. So what are we going to talk about today? Because we always look at some uh, incident, some event uh, that's, that's happening in our culture, and we apply one of St. Paul's truths um, and ask, you know, uh, are we measuring up? Uh, are we following, you know, what he would say we should do, or are we doing something different? And if we're doing something different, which is right, St. Paul or the way we're doing it. So that's, that's what we're about here on this program. And so today what we're going to be talking about, what is that thing that's going on in our culture that we're going to talk about? Well, it's this. Uh, we have left Afghanistan in very hurried fashion. We had been there for some 20 years after uh, September 11th, and as we record this program, it is September 11th. 2021. It is the 20th anniversary of that fateful day uh, in New York City and in our nation's capital some 20 years ago when more than 3,000 people lost their lives um, in a horrific, uh, unexpected fashion. Uh, they were just going about their business on a normal day, and somebody, and it wasn't God, decided that they needed to die. And that's what they made happen. And uh, so for 20 years after that, we went, we've been in Afghanistan because it had been a hotbed of terrorism where terrorists had organized, had trained, and had prepared to carry out missions. And so we went there to try to take the fight over there instead of having the fight over here. Well, we recently decided it was time for us to leave, and we left, as I say, in very hurried fashion. But there's a question that uh, is has been raised by all of this, um, the way it all unfolded. And that is, um, what about the people that are still in Afghanistan? Um, did we, or did, you know, are they facing certain consequences now that they, they should not have? Did we leave people behind? And if we did, if we ended up 
leaving faster than we had to, and people um, now we're going to experience consequences as a result of it. Well, then the question is, well, why? And the title of this program, the title of our program today is Bury My Heart. And where does that come from? Well, there was a book I remember. came out when I was young, but it was very popular at the time. And it was called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And it was written by a guy who wanted to tell the story of um, American Indians and what they suffered at the hands of Americans. And the title of the book came from a poem. Now, the poem was not about American Indians, not quite so much. But it was about a guy who, uh, in the early 20th century, said, I'm tired. It was t- called American Names. Stephen Vincent Benet wrote this poem. It's called American Names. And it was like, you know, um, don't talk to me about, you know, these names of these places in France, names of these places in in uh, in England. You know, Europe, of course, was, you know, the the place. I mean, it was... It had you know, colonized a large section of the globe, and uh, you know, it was you know, the uh, sophisticated uh, you know, all of the sophisticated places in the world. You know, the, hey, they were in Europe. And when you were in America, you know, we were known for our pioneering folks, our backwards kind of ways. Uh, but Mr. Benet had a different view. He said, look, talk to me about Medicine Hat. Talk to me about Tucson. Talk to me about Deadwood, French Lick. Skunk Town Plain, those are the names that I want to talk about. I don't, want to, don't tell me about uh, Mont, uh, Panas or Winchelsea or Sussex. No, talk to me about these American places. He was proud of America. Anyways, he said, you know, uh, you can bury my body uh, in England. You can bury my, my tongue in, in France. He said, but uh, his la- the last two lines of the poem, I shall not be there. I shall rise and pass. Bury my heart at wounded knee. Now, because he mentioned the names as well, Medicine Head, Deadwood, you know, places like that, he was familiar or an aficionado or perhaps, uh, you know, somebody who appreciated the American West. And so a place like Wounded Knee was well known to him. It was the site of a massacre. The last time that, um, you know, the U.S. Army uh, committed a, a wage an attack on Native Americans, the last site of the late, the site of the last major attack by the U.S. Army on Native Americans. It occurred in 1890, and it was a slaughter. Americans, American Indians, Americans um, were senselessly, horrifically slaughtered. They were killed. It was a killing field. So he wrote, "Bury my heart. You can bury my heart there, because I am." As if he was saying, what? I am there with them. I sympathize with them. Um, you know, uh, you know, whatever. I, I died a little bit, you know, with them. I mean, he really, uh, you know, absorbed the tragedy that those people felt. I suppose there's another way of kind of looking at that line or interpreting that line. I mean, bury my heart. My heart's killed. My heart's dead. I'm lost a feeling. After things, after something like that happens, I can't feel anymore. Uh, you know, there's no love left. I, you know, I just, you know, can't, can't try to, you know, care for people. Um, is that something that we could use in describing either what caused or how we're reacting to our exit from Afghanistan? Why is Afghanistan... 
to be put on a par with Wounded Knee? We'll tell you. But first, how about a letter from St. Paul? How about remembering when St. Paul wrote, For Christ, while we were still helpless, yet died at the appointed time for the ungodly. Indeed, only with difficulty does one die for a just person, though perhaps for a good person one might even find courage to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's it about? It's about someone making the ultimate sacrifice for people who didn't deserve it. Um, There are victims in Afghanistan. They did nothing wrong. You know, in the context of this story, they're not even sinners. They're just the innocents. You know, God has such love that even for the people who aren't innocent, even for the people who have rejected him, even the people who have done him wrong, he will still and did still and continues to still make the ultimate sacrifice for them. But if we left people behind that we should not have, if we turned our back on people that took a great risk for us, they were the ones who were uh, endangering themselves with the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, a lot of these people helped us over these past 20 years. Um, They aided the Americans, the hated Americans. They put their own lives in danger, far from being sinners, um, you know, these, these were people that were, in effect, you know, in, in a way, um, well, I mean, they're putting themselves on the line for the ultimate sacrifice. They were showing great courage. They were extending great love. Instead of rejecting us, they were showing great love for us. Maybe they had their own self-interest, but still the same. And if we turned our back on them, then we're not only failing to show the same love that God has, we're doing the opposite. We're doing the opposite. Would St. Paul tell us today in America, you're doing the opposite? Because remember now, or notice, what's the point? What's the focal point of this passage? God proves his love for us. That's the message St. Paul wants to tell us. He died, you know, when we were separated from him by our own choosing, and he proved his love for us. That's, that's what St. Paul wants to tell us. God loves you with such an immense passion that no matter what you do, he will still love you. You may end up being punished in a way uh, of your making, but he will never stop loving you. Um, it's all about the love. It's all about the love. It's whether you have a heart. It's whether we feel for those people. I mean, isn't that what we strive for? You know, uh, that we should be a compassionate society, that we shouldn't discriminate against anybody, that even the people the, the, the people that we look upon as the lowest, those are the people that we should elevate the highest. Those are the people that we should love the most. It should be love for everybody. And that's what the message that St. Paul says. God has love for everybody, even the people that rejected him. And that's what he would want to tell us to do. You have to love everybody. Even uh, on the cross, as he was dying, 
he forgave the people that were crucifying him. So he, he was ridiculously loving to a point where even those that were causing him the pain, the anguish, and the death, he was forgiving them. Uh, just an amazing thing. I, I don't think I would be near as, uh, near as good or near as capable of forgiving someone who was us unjustly putting me to death. I, that, that, that would not be my feeling as I, was, as I was struggling, yet Christ did exactly that, just did exactly that. This is one of those times that proves St. Paul. Because, you know, um, if we took that question that we started the program with, hey, if we're, do- if we're not doing what St. Paul said, and we're doing something different, who's right? Well, let's, let me ask you, let's, let's ask this question. Should we not love everyone all the time? Is not that, is not that the ultimate? Is there something that would be better than that? I mean, if we have that, you're talking about heaven on earth. So let me ask, so let's put it this way. You could not even believe in God at all. You could certainly not want to listen to the writings of St. Paul. You might not buy into the Catholic thing. You might not buy any of that. But if you agree with the idea that love is the way that human beings should act towards one another, then guess what? You do agree with St. Paul. And, you know, this is one of those times where um, just, you know, the nature of who we are, just human experience— proves that what St. Paul is saying, you know, is consistent with what we all agree is good. And so if we're agreed on all of that, then if we're not acting in that fashion, maybe something's wrong. Well, perhaps we're not acting in that fashion. David Axelrod, who worked with uh, Mr. Obama, President Obama, while he was vice president in the Obama administration— uh, David Axelrod, someone who has defended Obama and Biden on many occasions, said, however, you cannot defend the execution here. Uh, this has been a disaster, and everybody, anybody with a beating heart, watching these scenes of people desperately swarming the airport, trying to get out ahead of the slaughter that they anticipate from the Taliban, you know, it is heartbreaking. Anyone with a beating heart has to feel for this. I mean, what was, I mean, if you've forgotten or if you haven't been paying attention to the news, I mean, there were people that were running with airplanes as they were taxiing down or one way. Why in the world would you do that? What could you possibly hope to gain? I mean, obviously, they are so emotionally distraught. They're actually chasing airplanes on foot, and some of them clung to the airplanes until they fell. I mean, it, you talk about the sheer desperation, the abject, completely consuming fear that these people must feel at the approaching you know, rule of the Taliban, that they're willing to do this. Well, then let's ask a question. If they are so fearful and... If we're supposed to love everybody else, are we supposed to feel what they feel? If we don't, do we have a heart? David Axelrod said, anybody with a beating heart. So if that's true, were there no alternatives? Could we not have done anything different 
Oh, of course we could have. They could have done so much different. These people did not have to suffer. So if, I mean, he's, he said, you can't defend the execution here. He's not a Republican. He's not an opponent. This is one, and this is not, and he's not alone in this. There are lots of people um, who are saying the same thing. Ray, you know, I uh, traveled around a lot in my job, my previous job. And one of the things I'd do is I would go into other countries. And I would go into other countries where the United States was and sanctioned and would be there trusting that they would take care of me. Not trusting other governments, but trusting that the United States would take care of me. So I went to a place like China. Even with all that China is, the United States has a presence there. I was taken care of there. And I remember somebody asking me to go with them to North Korea. And I said, not a chance. And they said, why? And I said, well, the United States doesn't, they don't, the State Department doesn't write that you can go to North Korea. In fact, it says, stay the heck out. This is not a safe place. And so I would look to see whether I, as an American citizen, would be protected. And there were systems in place to protect me in the places I would visit and go do business in. These folks felt that they were protected in Afghanistan, felt as if the United States was going to protect them, had a duty to do so, and then they were completely abandoned. I can only imagine the fear, the aggravation, all the range of things that was going on in these folks' minds to feel completely abandoned and without hope that would then cause somebody to leap onto a moving plane and without much of a chance for survival at all still try to do that. The it just had to be raw emotions, just absolute fear. So we're told that, and we're told by the White House, the administration, that they're working with the Taliban. The Taliban's operating in a recent, uh, just a recent release. So they're, they're working with the Taliban. The Taliban is operating in a business-like fashion. We're, you know, we're going to get out. The, they're going to let the Americans out, um, and you know, they're not going to, they're not going to prevent us and so forth. Um. Now, the Taliban was the group that was in power in, in Afghanistan on 9-11 when the towers got struck. They were the ones that we ousted when we went into Afghanistan. They were a terrorist organization. So we're told now that perhaps they've changed somewhat. The, um, there's a TV station down in Dallas, and they did an interview with a local guy and he was chairman of the board of directors for the Islamic Association of North Texas. And he said, now this is about a week before the final pullout. This is August 22nd. He said, I've been on the phone night and day with people in Kabul. This man's name is Aziz Boudry. He said, everybody is asking me for help. How can they get out of the country? A nightmare. I think I'm dreaming, he said. He goes on. Three days ago, uh, somebody from Arlington, Texas, calls me, an, an Afghan immigrant. He said his brother, who had a SIV, a special immigrant visa, was on his way to the airport, the Kabul airport. The Taliban put five bullets in him. Um, there was um, one family who said, I'd rather die. I'm not going. Then we're going to go to the airport. I'd, I'd rather die here than go to the airport because I know the Taliban are going to kill me anyway. This is what's going on over there, and there's 
more stories, more, 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 more stories like this. There's an eighth grader. There are two dozen California students uh, who are left behind. Um, there's a superintendent of a school in the Sacramento area. And uh, they had some students over there. Uh, not sure of how that occurred. But anyways, he said, one of our eighth graders said it was chaos. Apparently they were doing maybe some kind of a Zoom call or video call. He said, you could see it in his eyes, anxiety and fear. Um, that was... Uh, that was on September 1st. This article was written um, September 1st. Um, so it seems like this boy, this eighth grader, and the, yeah, that's the point of the story. This eighth grader and two dozen California students left behind um, living, in, living in fear. Uh, there's another man ordered an article in a Tampa Bay newspaper, and uh, he grew up in Kabul. He immigrated here to the United States, but he said, you know, he remembers the harsh cruelty that I knew growing up in Kabul uh, during the Taliban regime. And he talks about the fact how the, the new government that has been announced by the Taliban, he said, quote, further breaks my heart for millions of Afghans back home. Uh, there's one of these guys, uh, Saryuddin Hokani, Hokani, um, who's been responsible for some of the most gut-wrenching you know, attacks in Kabul, innocent children, men, women. He's now the Minister of the Interior. He's got a $5 million bounty on his head as a terrorist. Ministry of the Interior. Minister of the, so he's going to be responsible for taking care of things and working in a business-like fashion. Um, you know, uh, and he talks about just, and this, this fellow just talks about dashed dreams. This guy, Ziazizi, um, he's, uh, he lives down in St. Petersburg apparently he's a real estate broker he said the American University says the dream of many Afghan students and produced outstanding Fulbright scholars now the buildings are empty and many of its students pleaded to be evacuated but were abandoned so you know you've got loss of life and besides just loss of life the loss, loss of well the loss of real physical life but also the loss of I guess the rewarding life the, the, the loss of hope for a life you could enjoy Dream shattered. I mean, this is um, this is what we're this is what these people are hearing from the people they know back over there. So, you know, this isn't new though. Um, we knew of this. Why? You know, why couldn't we have done it different? Well, we could have. There was a guy who wrote um, an article. He. Uh, Oh, I've got, uh, sometimes I can't find things as quickly as I want to, but here it is. Uh, there's a gentleman, what's his name? I don't know his name. I guess it doesn't matter what his name is. Kash Patel, that's his name. And uh, he was named chief of staff at the Pentagon, where one of his primary responsibilities was to wind down the war in Afghanistan. And he said that the president at the time, uh, President Trump, instructed me to do a methodical exit plan. Um, some of the requirements were that both sides had to both sides had to repudiate Al Qaeda. There was going to be an interim joint government. These sides had to agree, 
and we would leave a small special operations force against any terrorist activity. Uh, they had multiple rounds of negotiations after this plan was put into effect about a year and a half ago. Multiple rounds of negotiations between the Taliban and the President Ashraf Ghani. Uh, U.S. forces were, driven, uh, were drawn down to about 2,500. Um, and then when the new administration came in, they announced that there would be a withdrawal. They announced the definite date for the withdrawal, and they imposed no conditions on the withdrawal. So people knew that this was going to happen. Um, it could have been done different. You know, you could have maintained those conditions where unless there was an interim government, we just simply keep staying. You just push back the date. Um, you could have. And why would you want to do that? I mean, wouldn't you, if you felt something in your heart for the people there, wouldn't you do that? The whole idea of the, of the joint government, the interim government, was that there'd be stability so that people wouldn't have to face what they're facing now. Do you care about people? This is, you know, we started with this. We started with a reading from St. Paul that talked about Christ's sacrifice. And it was based in love. And that forms, and everything revolves around the cross. Everything in the Catholic faith, everything in the Christian world revolves around the cross. Why? Because it's the ultimate sacrifice, it's the ultimate example. And what is it an ultimate example of? It's an ultimate example of a certain kind of love, not the romantic, passionate, you know, you know, man-woman kind, but of a different kind of love where, you know, you care for the person, son, daughter, you know, father, mother, friend, colleague, stranger on the street, whatever, where you consider them first. You put them first. Before anything you want to do, before your own wants, your own desires, you put them first. That's the Christian model. The United States for years has stood as the example of that. We, would, we stood for helping other countries obtain freedom. We didn't always do it perfectly. We didn't do it without problems. But that's what we stood for. That was the moral claim that we could make. Maybe we, we couldn't claim that we executed it as well as we might want to at, at times. But that was the claim. That was the reason for the Marshall Plan. We defeated Germany in the Second World War. The Russians took half of Germany and they subjugated it. We took half of Germany and gave them money and helped them get back on their feet and then left. Um, we defeated Japan in the Second World War. We helped them and then left. We didn't conquer them as a territory and keep them. We could make this claim that we were trying to help other people enjoy the same kind of life that we were able to enjoy here. We cared for other people. That's what we stood for, to help other people. If this was just about us, to get us out, because we don't want to be in this war anymore, and we're going to do it so quick, we just, want to, we just want to bug out, and we don't care who we leave behind, we're a different country. And so the question is, um, boy, what kind of a country are we becoming, and do we want to be that country? Do we want to be a country where love isn't the center of who we th who we are, or who we at least think we are. Um, uh, Megan McCain was an anti-Trump advocate, a Biden supporter. Uh, father was Senator John McCain. 
uh, a Republican, but somebody who considered Biden a colleague and a friend for decades uh, in the Senate of the U.S. And uh, Biden was a personal friend. Um, she said when on August, after Mr. President's speech, President gave a speech on August 31st, and after that, Megan McCain wrote, um, I do not recognize this man. She said 13 American soldiers are dead, most of them between the ages of 20 to 23. Yeah, there were 13 American soldiers who, who died trying to guard the airport in Kabul to, as we're affecting this evacuation uh, from the airport. Suicide attack, if I remember right. It was a suicide yep. attack. And she said they're dead, uh, most of them between the ages of 20 to 23, because they were put in harm's way chaotically in the line of fire of a suicide bomber. And that's true. I mean, they, these people, they would let them through the gate. They'd search them. Well, what if you're searching somebody who's got a, a bomb? On there? You're going to die. And that's what happened to 13 people. Um, this is extremely difficult for me to say, she continues. I once thought I truly knew Joe Biden, and he helped me through pain and grief, for which I am grateful. Maybe he helped her when her father died. I don't know. This man on TV giving this speech, I do not recognize this man. God help our country. God help the Americans we have abandoned. She is feeling in her heart for the suffering that the Americans left behind are going to be going through. Wait, there's their suffering. There's anyone that they're related to. There is just a phenomenal amount of pain being, dis- being set up all the way across, right? There's, there's the people in Afghanistan and there's everyone that loved them. Since we live here in St. Louis, we had one of our, uh, our folks come back home, and uh, his body came back home. And the love and the outpouring for him over in Wentzville was just tremendous because of the love that they had for him. It's just incredible to me that we could do this sort of thing, allow this sort of thing to happen, and not protect those that my goodness, we had promised to protect. Are we on the right track, do you think, where I'm saying, you know, Megan McCain is feeling, you know, dramatically in her heart for these people. Is it right to think that the president doesn't feel the same way? I'm sure he does. I'm sure he cares about these people. Anyways, um, this speech on August 31st that that Megan McCain was reacting to, in it the president said, Since March, we reached out 19 times to Americans in Afghanistan with multiple warnings and offers to help them leave Afghanistan. Of course, all the way as far back as March. Now, of course, back in March, um, this reality of, you know, the troops leaving as quickly as as they did, it was still, I mean, uh, it was not a, a certainty. As recently as like a week or so I think before there was an interview with George Stephanopoulos that the president said, well, we'll stay after August 31st if we have to. And So anyways, but then he can, the president continues. After we started the evacuation 17 days ago, we did initial, this, so this is August 31st. After we started the evacuation 17 days ago, we did initial outreach and analysis and identified around 5,000 Americans who had earlier decided to stay but now wanted to leave. What does that mean? I remember when I heard him say that, it occurred to me that 
I mean, there's only one reason for saying that. It's to partially blame them, right? It's not our fault. It's their fault. They wanted to, you know, we had warned them, and they wanted to stay, but now they want to leave. Ah, they changed their mind. They changed their mind, and now they want to leave. Well, we'll try to help them as best we can, but, I mean, really, these people that are dying, they're partially to blame. The president of the United States, he is supposed to be the one who comes in, in times of trouble, times of trauma, he stands up and, you know, people look to the president for moral leadership, for, you know, calmness in a storm, for the person to guide the rest of us. And is that the way we're supposed to also, if we're supposed to be guided by this, are we supposed to think, well, it's their fault? What? So if they die, it's their fault? I mean, you know, there's, there's a thing about blaming the victim. And people decry it as a heartless thing. You know, I mean, it's the worst thing you, you can do. Well, it sounds an awful lot like blaming the victim. Would you say that if you had a heart? If you really, and it, if, I mean, if you, to have a heart, it means to really feel for these people to the, to the extent that you should. Again, perhaps we're being too harsh. Maybe we're being too harsh. Um, so it might be worth noting um, that in another that that another president, Gerald Ford, wrote in his biography about Joseph Biden. And now Gerald Ford was the president from uh, well from just a short period of time. Was it 1973 70, to 1974-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76-76
a delay to, you know, staying longer to try to stabilize the situation, keeping the troops there longer, was in our nation's best interest. Because if we try to pull out now, it'll lead to panic and chaos and will jeopardize lives. It was in our nation's best interest. If we pulled out quickly and it led to chaos and it jeopardized lots of lives, some of that's bad for our nation's interest. Why is that? All the people, every American citizen is in our nation's, protecting each American citizen is in our nation's interest. Our Bill of Rights centered around the idea that one person is as important as the entire federal government. The rights of one person can be held up in a court of law to defeat the entire government of the United States of America when the government is acting in an unconstitutional fashion, when it tries to override protected individual rights. This is our nation's interest to care for people. That was the view then um, by a president. Um, if we're going to continue to examine this, um, let's see. Um, there was a Democratic caucus in early 1975. Um, And Mr. Biden at this caucus said, I may be the most immoral son of a gun in this room. Um, As he argued against aid to Cambodia. Spending money for people in Cambodia. Anyways, he said, quote, I'm getting sick and tired of hearing about morality or moral obligation. Um, And then in 2010... According to the diary of Richard Holbrook, who was President Barack Obama's special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, according to Mr. Holbrook's diary, uh, when asked, when Biden was asked, then Vice President Biden was asked about American obligations to Afghanistan, like a girl in a Kabul school, Biden replied, um, F that. We don't have to worry about that. Um, a little girl in a Kabul school, an eighth grade, possibly Afghani girl from who was, I guess, who had apparently been in the U.S. and had been at a Sacramento school and was back in Afghanistan for some reason. A little eighth grade girl uh, from Sacramento, or some little girl in a school in in. Uh, in Vietnam, um, or just the moral obligation that we owe to people, don't have to worry about that. It's about the question, I guess, is really about caring for people. And how much do we care or not care for people? And shouldn't that be part of our national policy? If as a country, if as a nation, we lose sight of caring for people, you know, what's the point? Well, in fact, we quite often accuse other countries of being wrong for doing exactly that, for going in and killing others, for genocide, for various reasons. We think that's horrible. We call it horrific. And it is, right, to, to, to trade off these lives, to not do what's needed to protect these folks. And in fact, the other way, to allow them to die or actually to kill them, 
we, uh, we think is horrific and we should think it's horrific. Here, we're saying they're just part of the sacrifice. They, they, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh, isn't that too bad? Um, it's their own fault. Let's go ahead and let them die. Let's sacrifice them in order to pull off the plan that we want. Seems like crazy thinking. Well, you know, it's just, you know, would, would that thinking have been there, would have been the same if we cared more for the people? I mean, isn't that what this is all about? It's about loving and caring people. That's the issue in the smallest of problems that we'll encounter from day to day. And, it, and it's true for the biggest problems of entire countries. It's the same because truths apply in all places and all times, but they also apply in all circumstances. They apply in small circumstances and they apply in big circumstances. And that's why, you know, when St. Paul says, hey, the example of Christ in sacrificing for people that he shouldn't, have, you know, that he had no obligation to care about. He had no moral obligation to care about and still he cared. And that's the example. And here there's people that have helped us um, or that are part of us, they're, they're American citizens, and we don't need to feel a moral obligation for them? Of course you do. Of course we all do. We have a moral obligation, you know, to, to, to take care of everybody that we can. Um, I, you know, it's just, that's why people like Meghan McCain are distraught. They're sickened. They're sickened. They're sickened. Now, if that isn't bad enough, what happens if you have a national policy that doesn't have that as its center? Well, then you're not if you if you violate that principle, if you cause people untold suffering. Um, you know there are reports they're going house to house, hunting people down. There, it's been reported from multiple sources. That, well, for example, there are planes. That private, when, after the U.S. got out, um, private contractors, private organizations started to try to help get people out. And there were six planes that right there, I think, right at, I think on September 1st or right after the, you know, the pullout, they had six planes loaded. The people were loaded onto the planes. They never took off. The people eventually had to get off those planes, and they're supposedly housing and supposedly living in safe houses, so-called. Uh, but the Taliban is going door to door looking for them, and how do they know who to look for? Well, the reason those planes didn't take off is because they needed permission from the U.S. And so, these private organizations had to turn over manifests to the State Department listing all the people on those planes. Well, the U.S handed those manifests to the Taliban. Why? We gave them the identity of these people. It's like having a police undercover agent who goes under, who goes, you know, he's, a, he's inside the mafia. And then you tell the mafia who he is. You betray that person. And then, of course, the mafia will turn around and kill that person. That's what the U.S., because we're trusting the Taliban is going to be good and kind and, you know, and so on. 
but they've they just appointed a guy as their minister of the interior who is responsible for many terrorist killings of innocent people um I, I mean, it's it, it's 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 really hard to comprehend and it's really hard to try to defend what's going on you have outed these people you've doxed these people and you've doxed them to people who kill without compassion kill without reservation that's who you've doxed them to you haven't just doxed them to the point where they're going to suffer public ridicule you've doxed them to the point where they're going to die um and that was our state department uh, can was, you can you help me explain why we told them not to take off? Why would we stop them from taking off? Were we afraid that they were harboring somebody that we didn't like and we didn't want to deal with that? The private organizations claim that these people have already passed through the U.S. vetting process. There's an organization called OFAC, O-F-A-C, I believe is the spelling. Um, and the people that were allowed on the planes all passed that initial test. And secondly... They're not flying to the U.S. They would fly to some other place, and then they would be offloaded, and then you could continue to do as much background checking as you would want on those people before you might eventually let them into the U.S., maybe not. But there'd be time to do that. Now they're off those planes in Afghanistan hiding for their lives, um, and presumably uh, to get permission for any of them to leave, um, you know, we have to get permission and we have to, you know, get the agreement of the Taliban. So effectively, they're hostages. There are reports of hundreds of these people, uh, close to a thousand from these planes. You know, back in, uh, back when Iran became a big uh, thing on the, on the worldwide stage with when Jimmy Carter was president, we had 53 American hostages held for about a year, a little over a year, I think. Now there could be at least, at least over a thousand. Uh, hundreds of them Americans, some of them, you know, SIV, you know, uh, special immigrant visa holders who have helped the U.S. A lot of them are journalists, people that have worked for Voice of America, which is an American uh, organization. It's it's a it's a it's a branch of our federal government. Uh, a lot of them worked um, for another uh, or as a private organization, but funded, I believe, by the U.S. Uh, but American journalists and um, left there by the hundreds. There were urgent pleas to the White House days before the evacuation. Uh, please, you know, we've got to do what we need to do uh, to get these people out, left behind. Um, and journalists who reported, you know, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe. The, the other organization was, was Radio Free Europe. Is, uh, that's part of its name. Um, you know, but they're, they're not appreciated by the Taliban. <laughs> the journalists regularly, they got death threats. Some of them have been killed already, you know, already. Well, since from 2016, I think four of these, the people from this organization were killed. Um, you know, and to leave them behind. I mean, why would we not let them out? Would you have to admit you were wrong, right? Would you have to admit that we evacuated people? If these private organizations are going around after August, we leave on August 31st. And if these private organizations are then continuing to do what we couldn't do, isn't that a slap in your face? So you, uh, you know, refuse to let these planes, you know, go. I mean, is it just all, again, is it all about you and making you look good? 
the president, according to Reuters, had a phone call. The president, President Biden, had a phone call with the president of Afghanistan, who has now fled the country. His name was uh, Mr. Ghani. Um, Reuters obtained a transcript of that call. Call began, and then almost immediately, President Biden said, "There's a perception around the so." Right away, you know, right after the phone call starts, the perception around in parts of the world um, that things are not going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban. This is in July, like late July, so about six weeks perhaps, before, yeah, July 23rd, so five weeks before the August 31st pullout. Uh, there's a perception that things aren't going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban. And there's a need, whether it's true or not, there's a need to project a different picture. Uh, so it's all about the picture that we present. Um, he said that uh, basically he made comments about getting more help if you adopt this strategy, which will try to help change this perception. President Ghani responds, Mr. President. I mean, so he's, he's asking him, President Biden's asking him to adopt some policies which Will make which will change the perception. Um, President Ghani was dealing with different concerns. He said, "Mr. President, we are facing a full-scale invasion, composed of Taliban, full of Pakistani planning and logistical support, and at least ten to fifteen thousand international terrorists." Second, what is crucial is close air support. What we need at this moment uh, is air power. Um, if you could assign your national security advisor or the Pentagon or anyone you wish to work with us on the details, so our expectation, particularly um, regarding your close air support, et cetera, et cetera. He said, um, you know, uh, he said, I just spoke with uh, one of his ministers, and he said he went to negotiate with the Taliban. The Taliban showed no uh, inclination. We can get to peace if we rebalance the military situation. We will be able to rally, but your assurance of support uh, is going to be the key. He was pleading. He was facing, here he is, president in his home country. He's facing a full military invasion, outside interference from the Pakistanis, 10 to 15,000 terrorists. He was pleading for the life, his life, the life of his country. Give us some close air support. If we can rebalance the military situation, we can rally. We can get our people to believe that, the, you know, and it wouldn't happen. Um, you know, Senator Ben Sass, you know, that, then there's reports that you know, all of a sudden this is becoming an old story. People don't want to talk about Afghanistan anymore, and certainly the news organizations are not covering it. As a matter of fact, the major networks didn't cover that telephone call at all. Senator from Nebraska, uh, Mr. Ben Sass said, President Biden desperately wants to talk about anything but Afghanistan. But Americans who are hiding from the Taliban, ISIS, and the Haqqani network don't give a damn about news cycles, long weekends, and polling. They want out. The Biden administration has a moral obligation. There are those words, moral obligation, again. Um, so if the journalists aren't covering these stories, uh, there's another article I can refer to where it shows that the Post, the New Washington Post, New York Times, and so forth, organizations that had spent a lot of time uh, 
you know, complaining or criticizing the way we engaged in this. After August 31st, they're no longer reporting on this. So people are suffering there. They're living, uh, we're out. They're living in the situation that's left behind. They've got people going door to door, hunting them down. Um, they're suffering, and for us, it's an old news story. So this is not just about the president. This is about the country. Do we not care? I'm old enough that I remember a country when this would not be tolerated. Um, uh, not this way. Not this way. Um, Vietnam was a different story. Uh, here, we had the upper hand. We had all the power. We left because we felt like it. In Vietnam, we were losing that war. Here, we had control of the country, and we simply no longer wanted it. And we threw these people under the bus because we just simply decided. Um, and well, now, even, as even a news story, you know, people aren't gonna, don't, they don't want to talk about it anymore. It's too uncomfortable to talk about. It's old news. Where is the heart? I'll tell you what, bury my heart. Bury my heart in Afghanistan. Ray, if you just put together a cohesive plan to allow these people to leave and defend them long enough until we can get folks out. The rush that we had to do this, like we had to do it by a certain date, some date was intrinsic, some mark on a calendar, why we could not hold control and keep them protected until we could get the folks out. I, I, I don't understand that. Would that make it go too long? Would we therefore lose face somehow and allow all these people to die, to be persecuted the way they are? Do we not love our fellow man that we would allow this to occur? Seems crazy. Well, perhaps we could uh, use the, maybe we could use a prayer for, uh, as a nation, for us to, to feel some more heart. So. Let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, let us truly understand human life, the value of human life, whether it be an aborted fetus whether it be someone on death row, and in this case, the lives of Americans and Afghanis that are left behind. Allow us not to count people like they're sheep or dollars. Allow us to have our hearts open to those. Jesus went way beyond what we could do, and he began to love and desired us to love those that were fighting against him, that were sinners that were doing the wrong things. Allow us not to be so harsh. Allow us to love one another, to protect their lives, take care of them and love them and watch over them. Let us be a country that takes care of the underdog, that watches over those in need and tries to help all of those around the world that need that help from terrorism and brutality. Allow us to love and to follow your son's example, not only as loving those around him, but then to pay the ultimate price of death on a cross to save us. Allow us to be just a little bit more like him. In the name of the Father, and, and of the, the Son, Son, and of the, the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.